Take your Bibles tonight, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Tonight I would title the Bible study, Glory in the Highest. And I want to show you because that phrase, glory in the highest, uh, that specific wording is only used twice in Luke's Gospel and actually twice in the entire New Testament. Uh, There's some close phraseology uh, that Matthew and Mark talk about when, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. They say, Hosanna in the highest, which is very similar and maybe parallel in some ways, but that's not going to be our uh, investigation tonight. I do want to look at those two, and I would call them framework, book work, bookends of Luke's gospel. And I would challenge you because I do say that a, a number of things. I think the Bible has a lot of those literary uh, terms called an inclusio. They're just brackets. They frame things out. Uh, They don't tell us everything, but they give us perspectives of why the author may have done um, and and put things together. How It doesn't show us everything, and there are multiple frameworks, usually in Bible books or or in smaller passages and chapters or even paragraphs. It doesn't say everything. It's not exhaustive, but it is helpful. And I would encourage you uh, to look at beginnings and endings. Um, there is a book out actually be called Beginnings, and the second volume is called Endings. And it's how the books of the Bible begin, and the importance of it, and how they end, and how those things go together. It's a fascinating study. Um, I have those two books. If you're interested, I'll let you see them, or, or tell you how to get copies of your own. But you know that's cru- crucial, and it's a great study, even if you just looked up your own. Things that are the very similar or identical at the beginning and end of things tell you how the gospel writer or the author might be framing things out. And that is actually the case with Luke. And Luke does that. And I want to show you one, the glory in the highest one. It's a Christmas one. And uh, it is found, the first instance of it is in the birth narrative in Luke 2. And it reads in, let me start in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, or King. The Lord is King, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. These would be angels that are attired in military wardrobe. So they would have armor on, swords. They would look like soldiers, basically, angelic soldiers. Um, They're God's armies. Praising God and saying, here it is, glory to God in the highest. There's the first time it's used. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're going to unpack and tackle that in a little bit. You want to hold your finger there and, of course, turn to the, toward the end of Matthew's gospel, I mean Luke's gospel, chapter 19 and verse 38. And this is Jesus uh, riding into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. You could say actually this way. The first one is the triumphal entry into humanity. The second one is the triumphal entry into humility. And uh, they are both triumphant. Jesus is coming into the world. And the second one, he's coming into Jerusalem to take our sins. So they're both entries in their own right. But let me read it for you. And I'll begin with verse 35, uh, Luke 19, 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road and he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude, remember the first one, and we'll compare these in a moment. 
The whole, it was the multitude of the angels that said this. This time it's the whole multitude of disciples. And they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And here's what they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. And here's our second use. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, that's the only two times. That what's, that's what makes it unique. And that's why I would say, in my opinion at least, that they're not accidental. Uh, to use those terms, only Luke does it. And he does it twice. And we're going to see tonight how those two uh, connect to each other. How they go together. And what that means for our lives. Um, Luke does... And I mentioned this a number of weeks ago, maybe five or six weeks ago, um, and we were talking on Sunday morning about Luke likes to pair things together. He likes to put certain times side by side, men and women, Pharisees and sinners. Um, He does that all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Let me just highlight them for sake of example. Um, In the Christmas narrative part of Luke, he puts Zechariah, that's John the baptizer's dad, and Mary side by side. They both get dreams and God tells through the, the angel, they're both going to have impossible situations. Zechariah seemingly doubts about it, and Mary has strong faith and believes, even though it seems impossible. But he compares them side by side in that, in that situation. Then you get Elizabeth and Mary, and she's pregnant, six months. Mary goes to see her and talks about John in her womb and Jesus in Mary's womb and John jumps for joy and so there's a big comparison about how great John's going to be so that actually is the third one so you have Zechariah and Mary and then you have Elizabeth and Mary and then in the birth narrative in Luke's gospel you have Jesus and John side by side and they both are described as being great but Jesus is greater because he's the son of the most high God and uh, so you got those comparisons side by side and then a little later toward the end of that you got, they come to the temple to dedicate Jesus, and you have Simeon, and then you have Anna. Again, a man-woman contrast in the birth narrative. You have Simeon, and you have Anna. They're both in the temple. They both have different roles in the birth narrative in Jesus's life, and, and those are only the ones that are in the birth narrative. Again, you could tra- track it all the way through the Gospel of Luke, and it's something that Luke likes to do. He likes to make contrasts, and I would extend to you that It's not only what he does with people, but he also does it with phrases. He likes to put phrases in there, and he likes us to contrast and compare them, and he has applications and points, especially theologically, that he wants to make. Let me give you an example before we get into the one that we're having. I did this, Pat, as application for my sermon last Sunday night in my small group. This is the one I did, um, and it was the phrase, great joy. Can you look at it there for you? Uh, and in uh, Luke chapter 2, in verse 10, we read it already. But it's the word mega, meaning great. It's not your ordinary joy. It's extraordinary joy. It's joy that is of a supernatural kind of joy because it's connected and related to Jesus and the good news about him. And it reads in verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you gospel Evangel, evangel, that the good news, and there it is, great joy. That will be for all. Now, now Luke only does it twice. Again, the first one is in the birth narrative. The second one is the very last verse of the Gospel of Luke. If you want to look there, chapter 24 and verse 52. This is after Jesus has raised from the dead. 
This is after he's given them a great commission. So here's what we say in verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with, there it is, great joy. It's the only two times Luke uses it. And I would say it's a great, it's one of the frameworks that you could see what happens. You can say, hey, Jesus is born in the world and he's bringing the good news of great joy. But, and then the last one, they have great joy as they go out of the world. But in between, is the revelation of how do you get the great joy? How is Jesus the great joy? How can he bring to us great joy? Well, you're going to find out it's the life that he lived and more particularly the death that he died and of course conquering sin and death through the resurrection. So the great joy is not dependent on or come from a source that you normally would think. That's what we tackled last week. And there's even another reference that Luke uses a couple time, one time in Acts 15 about the Gentiles being converted. And so great joy is not something that we just get on our own or comes from circumstances. It comes from Jesus, in particular, his life and his death and resurrection. And great joy is not something that you keep to yourself. It's something that you share with others so that they can have that great joy. That's what our mission is. So we tackled that last week, but that's an example of how Luke uses similar or identical phrases as couplets to frame in things, to teach us things. He does that with great joy. And he does it also, if I can say, with the one that we're looking at tonight and examining ourselves. He talks about glory in the highest. Again, he only uses it twice. Nobody else uses it. Um, and, and so I want to take a look at that tonight. So when you put the two, if we, again, if we had the ability to have like a chart, uh, we could have side by side. We have the glory in the highest in the birth narrative, and we have it when Jesus is entering Jerusalem for Passion Week, the last week of his life. So they're kind of bookends or frameworks for his life. Let me tell you this. The, the first one is a multitude of the heavenly hosts. So we have a multitude of angels who uh, give this announcement of glory in the highest. The last one, uh, as he comes into Jerusalem, is the multitude of the disciples. And so you have... People from heaven saying it the first time, and now you got people on earth saying it the second time. And we're going to find that that is the whole point of it. That Jesus taught us to pray, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's God's greatest desire. Ever since we were separated from sin from him in the Garden of Eden, that God has made a plan for heaven and earth to come back together again. In fact, if you read Revelation at the end, you'll see that heaven and earth merge into one again, and God can dwell with his people, and we are able to dwell with him, and God has uh, resolved the problem that our sin has cursed. And so here we got heaven and earth joined together in this book of Luke, as the, they both talk about glory in the highest. Second uh, comparison or contrast I saw as Jesus, the first one is when they announce him as a baby king in Bethlehem. And the second one is he announced as an adult king in Jerusalem. And both of those cities, Bethlehem and Jerusalem, were absolutely crucial uh, for his designation as being king. And that's really what we're talking about. When they say glory in the highest, uh, they are praising God in the heaven of heavens for the king that he has sent to them. And, and that's going to be crucial tonight in some of the things that we say. Interesting, the king comes in, in contrast in ways that they never thought possible. In the first glory to the highest praise, Jesus is in a manger. The second time glory in the highest by his disciples is shouted, he is on a donkey. Now what does that tell you in that contract? That he is the king of Israel, that he is 
the glory of God in the highest, that he is the king of Israel, but not the kind of king that you think. He's the kind of king that's not born in a palace and not born into being a celebrity with all that goes with it. No, he's born in a feeding trough. He's born in a manger. He's born of parents who were so poor they had to have doves at the, instead of a lamb sacrifice at the temple when he was dedicated. They're poor slave peasants and they're in a feeding trough. That's where they lay him in a manger. And when he's an adult riding into Jerusalem to be acknowledged as king by his disciples, it hasn't really changed anything because he went from being in a manger to being on a donkey. And that's a quotation from Zechariah 9. But what they do show together is the kind of king that he will be. He's not a king like Caesar. He's not a king that brings peace on the earth, Pax Romana and peace because of force. No, it's going to be by faith. You're going to have to believe that he is the king, and you're going to have to choose, as we're going to say tonight, you're going to have to choose to submit to that kind of authority and what that means for your life. Fourthly, there's peace on earth. That's what shouted and praised the first time. Glory to God on the highest and peace on earth. But the second time, as he looks over Jerusalem, as he, as he travels in, they don't say peace on earth when they say glory to the highest. This time they say peace in heaven. Again, solidifying in our minds the idea of heaven and earth finding peace together. And we've got to understand the question is, how do we put those two together? Is it possible to put those two together? Can there be glory in the highest, peace in heaven, and can there be peace on earth? And if so, how is that possible? Well, Luke's answer to that and all the frameworks and all the inclusios and all of the contrast and comparison is to make the answer this. Jesus is the answer. How can heaven and earth become together? Well, he's the only one. He's the only mediator that can bring those two things together. And then these verses are going to tell us how indeed he does that. So the connection tonight is glory from heaven and peace on earth. That's what the angels shout. That's what Jesus brings. That's why it's called good news, right? And and can I tell you tonight, it's a battle to bring those two together. Satan wants nothing more or better than to keep them separate because if he knows he can keep mankind from doing what the angels do, giving glory to God in the highest, if he can keep them from that, then he knows there will be no peace on earth. There can't be any peace on earth. Glory to God makes it possible to have true peace on earth. If you have God in his right place in heaven, things will fall into the right place on earth. But the moment that you drop the glory and the highest part out of it, you can forget about the peace on earth part about it. And Satan knows that. So he wants mankind to seek world peace, peace amongst men, human peace. He wants them to try to seek it in ways that are outside of who God is. In fact, without God at all would be his Goal. In fact, we could, if the world wrote this verse it, or the angels praise, it might sound like this Glory to man in the lowest, <laughs> and on earth, peace toward those in whom man is pleased. So Satan wants to make it human centered, he wants to make it anthropocentric about man, he wants to leave God out. And so that brings us to my main point tonight, our main purpose, the thesis of what I want to get into your mind and help you stew on a little bit tonight. The Christmas story gives us this, these two passages on glory to the highest and peace. There's two ways or two choices, or it may be better said, two kinds of peace. See, you can get 
You can seek peace man's way, or you can seek peace God's way. And what Luke is very clear to us in these passages and throughout his gospel is that there are two ways to go about it because there are two kinds of it. Let me show you what I mean by that. And the prophecy I uh, alluded to, I think, a little earlier, Zechariah's prophecy, if you look there just back one page, uh, right before chapter 2 begins, Zechariah makes this prophecy, and he says at the end of it, um, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness. That sounds like the Isaiah 9 passage. And in the shadow of death, here it is, to guide our feet in the way of peace. See, what one of the things Messiah will do that John the baptizer will introduce is that he will tell us about the forgiveness of sins. He will tell us that there's a light in the darkness. That's what Christmas does. And what will that do? It will guide our feet into the way of peace because here's what comes natural to us. Can I say it to us? We don't follow God's way of peace. And the word way is always the word road. We don't take God's path of peace. And here's why. Because we don't want peace God's way. We want it man's way. Uh, uh, And here's why. Let me just tell you. Because the usual usage or meaning of peace in the Bible is not general peace um, like kind of peace when you get prosperity and you have a trouble-free life. That's not the primary use. It can be used that way. It's not the primary use of peace. Peace, most times in the Bible, means the end of enmity and warfare. It's between two opposing forces when they're at odds with one another, opposition to one another, and fighting or war breaks out. You could say between enemies. We would say, New Testament lingo, fundamentally it's a peace with God. There is a peace of God, and there is a peace with God. And, and here's what the Christmas story brings out. There are two kings. Uh, there's Caesar, and there's Jesus, and they're, the, they're king of heaven, and one's king of earth, and therefore there are two kinds of kingdoms. There are two kings, and therefore there are two ways of peace. There is the Pax Romana, that's Latin for the Roman peace, and there's Redeemer peace. Um, There's one that I I have because I'm the world ruler. There's one because I am the world redeemer. There's one that comes through crown. There's one that comes through a cross. There's one that comes through force. And there's one that comes by faith. They are completely different one of one another. And and can I tell you this? And this is what the verse means. Look at verse 214. This is the ESV translation. If you have an old King James, um, you'll know that um, it's a little different. The King James says, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace. What does it normally say? And goodwill toward men. Remember that? That's the song we have in the hymn book, right? And, and that's one way of translating. Now, most of the evidence today, textually, and the translators were almost unanimous that this ESV is a better translation. And it goes like this. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. <coughs> Without going into all the technicalities of that, it means that the ones whom he has favored, and, and, and truthfully, I, I could put this, the ones that God has peace with are the ones that he has graced. In other words, the people that he has changed their lives. His good pleasure is on them. He has revealed himself to them. They have accepted him for who he is. Those are kind of the ramifications of it. So there are basically two types of people in the world. 
There are those who have accepted Jesus as king, and there is those who live as if Caesar as king. And, and, and here's the thing. Most of us are, are hostile, without Christ, of course, <coughs> to God's authority in our lives because we don't naturally on our own, submit to that sovereignty, that authority in our life. We think, and we like to think, that we know how to run our lives better. And that changes, see here's the Christmas story, that changes, and we can have peace, and here's the fruit of it, that when we've been favored by God, when we have become pleasing to God, when he has graced us with revelation of who he is, There's a Savior who's born, and that Savior becomes our God and our King, and we change because naturally our hearts, we want to be King, and that makes us hostile to God. We don't like the fact that he comes into the world and he has claims of lordship. And and can I say, I wrote down, um, we are okay with Jesus in a manger, and even at times we're okay with Jesus on a cross because all of those things are things that deal with our sin and the penalty of it. But we're not okay very often, including a lot of Christians at times, when we see Jesus on a throne. In a manger, yes, because he's cuddly and he's kind of like not too dangerous. On a cross, because he's doing something for us. But the moment we see him on the throne, we're not too interested because now he's asking something of us. And we're not as happy about that. And we are good with God's salvation, not so good with his sovereignty We love him as the lamb, not so uh, much in love with the fact that he is Lord. Um, We're okay with changing our destiny, but not so much that he requires that we change our desires and our deeds. Um, Jesus be the king of my life, as an example, but not the king of my love life. And so Jesus, I'm okay with you um, being Lord to the point where you die for my sins and you take my life and, and I go to heaven but don't tell me how to run my life, see? And we're not interested. So I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to have to obey the fact that I'm going to date a Christian or marry a Christian. I, you know, I'm not so interested in you controlling me that much. I, I want you to change my afterlife, but not say so much about my present life. I mean, I, I like the fact that you give me eternal life, but when you try to tell me how to run my earthly life, I'm not as excited about it. And, and so we compartmentalize as an example. Um, we give God the spiritual things. And I've had counseling sessions with people many times who are okay with spiritual things and God running them. But they don't think he has much to say or the Bible has much authority. Um, God, when it comes to going to church or what songs we should sing or how to read the Bible, those are all spiritual. That's God's domain. He's the expert over there. But when it comes to my finances or how to run my marriage or relationships or how I respond to psychological or emotional difficulties or what's right and wrong sexually, or, and, and the list goes on, we've compartment. God, you stick over here in the spiritual matters, but see all this list over here, these are things that I control in my life. And, and here's what the Bible says. Glory to God in the highest and, and peace on earth or among men comes to those whom God is pleased with. Those who have accepted him as the king. Those who understand what it means for him to be Christ the Lord, it says. 
born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's not just a Savior from your sin and you go on your merry way and act and live the same. No, this Savior is King the Lord, King Jesus. He is Christ the Lord. He is in charge of your life. And see, we're not so inclined to be excited about that. But of course, you and I know, right, that our self-centered desire to command and control our own lives almost always leads to conflict and hostility with other people. See, so here's, here's a formula for you. If you have hostility with God, you will, it will lead to hostility with people. And so you have Christians who say that Jesus is Lord, but you'd never know it in their marriage. And they wonder why they have war in their marriage and there's no peace there, and why the enmity is between parents and their children, and why their children are not living for God, and they have such a struggle and it's such a fight on the smallest things all the time. And there's a lot of tension, war, struggle, fighting, as it were, going on in your home. And, and can I tell you, parents, if you haven't figured it out yet, listen, there, there's war and fact, fraction there and, and, and division. You know why? Because your children are at peace with God. See, that's the source of hostility. Jesus' birth, he comes into the world and the glory of the highest peace on earth because, here's what, they, they please him, but when there's no pleasing there and there's no peace with God, it's gonna result in hostility. We sing the Christmas song, don't we, in the line that says, God and sinners reconciled. We sing that. And that is the Christmas story. And, and when we are reconciled to God, we will be reconciled to one another. Not because there's never problems in a marriage, but the way that we handle them and the pursuit of peace in them and how we go about them and who is the king in them and how he's king and the ways that we go about expressing that when there are problems and difficulties between parents and their children or husbands and wives is a world of difference. Just so you're not mistaken tonight, let me clarify this. There are two ways to express hostility to God. One of them is the explicit way that even irreligious people do, of course, and that is to say, I want to live any way that I want to live, and that's obvious to most everybody. When you say, I want to live the way I live, and I don't really care what God says, that's explicit independence from him. That's hostility. There can be no peace there. But the second one is a little more insidious. It's implicit. It's what religious people do, and perhaps maybe what you do, and that is, I'm going to obey the Bible and do all these things, and now because of that, God has to bless me. He, he, I'm entitled to him giving me a good life. See, that is implicit independence from God. It's you making an effort to control God, not trust him. So when you obey God to get his blessing, you are seeking to be your own savior. You want him to do what you want. And, and God is very, very clear that he wants us to understand the kind of peace that we seek is crucial. Let me show you a little bit more. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Remember the glory to God in the highest, on, peace, on earth peace to those whom God has favored. Now look what Jesus says about peace. And here's the question. We're going to ask, which one is it? Did he come to bring peace on earth or did he not? Look, look what he says in Luke 12. And verse 51, verse 49, let's read into it. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? There's that phrase. Do you think I came to give peace? Well, didn't the angels say it? Glory to God in the highest and to peace on earth. Isn't that why Jesus came? Well, yes, but depending on what kind of peace. If you think it's a peace that doesn't submit to God, it doesn't recognize his authority, it doesn't live under it, but said, you know, says, hey, I really live under the world's kind of authority, and that's the kind of peace I want. He says, if you think I came to bring the world's kind of peace, you are wrong. Look at verse, he says, no, I tell you, I didn't come to bring that kind of peace. I, I, that, therefore, I came to bring division. See what he says? See, there's a difference between the two. You read the last words that Jesus says to his disciples on the way to the Mount of Olives in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and 16. Remember what he says? I don't give you the world's kind of peace, right? In the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. My peace I leave to you. Not as the world gives, I give unto you. You see what he says? I don't give you that kind of peace. So the peace that Jesus brings when you submit to his authority as king does not mean that you have a trouble-free life. And the disciples had anything but that. And God's not promising you, he's not promising you, because you submit to him that you're going to have everything you want and the good life's going to be yours. That's not what it means. And so here's what we find out. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, uh, it says, to those who God has favored. And that means even though he's favored you and given his grace to you, that doesn't mean his favor extends to you never having any problems, never struggling. And if you don't want that kind of peace and you end up rejecting him because you want the world's kind of peace instead, when he doesn't give you what you want and you didn't get that job or that promotion or that boyfriend or that your way in something or he didn't answer your prayer and say, now you're not want, you're thinking maybe I don't want to serve him, follow him. See, he said, be careful. I didn't bring peace. I came to bring division. I wanted to see what's in your life. So Jesus came to bring peace, but he changed, that peace changes your life. It brings about a submission to his rule and his authority in your life that is not conditional. And can I tell you, sadly, but truthfully, Israel never got it because the last time it's used, can I turn there and close tonight? He rides in on the donkey in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. It reads in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Because Jesus realizes right now they've rejected his kind of peace. And there won't be peace on earth. And for now it'll only be in heaven. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would cry. All of creation would cry out. Listen to this. Remember we're talking about peace? Israel didn't want the Jesus peace. They wanted Caesar peace. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And look what he says. There's two things they didn't know. Would that you, even you, had known, here it is, first one, on this day, the things that make for peace. See, they think that they needed to be aware of Roman peace, so they couldn't let Jesus spoil it for them, so they had to crucify him. They rejected his kind of peace. They wanted peace on the outside. They wanted peace to God to give them what they wanted. And they wanted military power. And they wanted their way. And they wanted God to do this stuff for them. And when Jesus wasn't that kind of a king, they wouldn't submit to that kind of authority. See how it works? 
They didn't want his peace. They wanted Caesar peace, world peace in that sense. And he says, you didn't know, but this is, you don't, you missed out with the things that make for peace. And see, there are some of people here, listen, you're listening, and you're missing out. You don't really know what real peace is and where it comes from and how to get it because you don't want it the way Jesus offers it. You're not willing to submit to that. And because of that, verse 43 says, verse 42 at the end, but now they're hidden from your eyes. God tried to reveal it to you in the way that Jesus lived and you're going to see in the way he dies, but you didn't want any part of it. You didn't want a cross. You wanted the crown. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And here's the second thing they didn't know. Same verb, no. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know. See, you didn't know what made for your peace. And here's another way of saying the same thing. You didn't know the day of your visitation. And next Wednesday night, that's our whole lesson. It's going to be on God being our Christmas visitor. What does it mean when visit? Just let me say this much. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when God visits his people, he breaks into history to bring salvation and judgment depending on their response to his offer of peace. We don't have any time left tonight, but can I tell you this? You have a choice. God is Christmas at Christmas offers peace, his kind of peace, not the world's kind, his kind. The submission to his authority that doesn't come with any strings attached, that you can't lay any conditions on him. Will you submit to him because of who he is, or will you have to have things your way? What kind of peace are you going to pursue? You look through the entire book of Luke, and the times that everyone who has peace, Simeon said, Lord, now I can depart in peace. You know why? He was holding Jesus. It was connected to him. He was holding him in his hand. The woman who was an immoral woman and everything else, the city woman at Simon the Pharisee's house, Jesus, she's on her hands and feet. She's wiping his feet with her her hair and, and crying with tears and washing his feet. He says to her, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's a woman. This isn't the woman that you think would get God's peace, but it is. Chapter 8 and verse 48 is the woman who had the issue of blood. She comes up behind Jesus and touches his tassel, and he talks to her, and eventually he heals her. And he says, go in peace. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. So you have an older man in the temple. You have an immoral woman, a woman who's unclean because of her issues. And then you have Israel. Israel here. And they have an offer of peace. But you know, the response is different. It's not faith in Jesus without any qualifications. No, they want Jesus to come and they want him to defeat their enemies and do what they want him to do. And when he doesn't, here's what it says. You've missed it. God visited you. God came to bring salvation to you. God came to give you his peace. And you rejected it. You forfeited it. You missed the visit at Christmas. You know, this is your opportunity tonight because God has laid out to everyone under the sound of my voice the opportunity to choose Christmas peace. Jesus peace. The peace that's connected to him. The peace that comes in and rules your life in a way that no one else or nothing can. A peace that doesn't come with strings attached, but it's a peace that you can't get anywhere else. It's the kind of peace that never goes away and never changes no matter what else is going on around you. And maybe there's some of you tonight, you're listening, you say, I need that. I really need that kind of peace. If you only knew what was going on in my life, can I tell you, you can have it. 
but it's going to take a humility. It's going to take a submission. It's going to take a putting yourself under the authority of God's rule in your life and say, Jesus, no compartmentalizing, no categories anymore. Here's my life, period, every bit of it, all of it. Take it, be king and Lord of my life. That's how you can have God's peace. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this night and for the truth that we've tackled in this passage. There is no peace on earth if there is no peace with you. That's the reality. And I pray tonight for those who are desperately seeking that peace. They've been seeking it in all the wrong places and they want an external peace. Father, there's so much more needed and can I say so much more offered in Jesus through his life and his cross and his death and resurrection. I pray tonight that they would be willing to humble themselves and be broken in their heart and submit themselves to King Jesus because only him and in him is the way, the true way of peace. May they find it by faith in you that you might get the glory and they might get the good, the peace. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.